Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Andy Murphy. Yellowstone is America's first national park. This year is the 150th anniversary of President Ulysses Grant signing the law establishing Yellowstone. Its natural beauty and ecological importance was also revered by tribes well before settlers arrived. The land's documented connection to more than two dozen tribes goes back thousands of years. We'll learn about the native connection to Yellowstone coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The U.S. Supreme Court announced Monday it will hear challenges to the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. The law is intended to keep Native children with Native families, as Trip Kraus reports. The law was passed in 1978 in response to the disproportionate removal of Native children from their homes, families, and communities. The Indian Child Welfare Act is a federal law that is used in Native child adoption cases. Many of the arguments opposing ICWA say that the law illegally discriminates against non-Native families based on race when placing Native children in homes. And that's the argument at the core of Bracken v. Holland. The case began as a lawsuit in 2018 in Texas. It challenges ICWA as a race-based law and says it should be struck down based on equal protection grounds. In April, the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals divided on Bracken v. Holland in a split decision and ruled that parts of ICWA were constitutional, while other parts were not. Because of the split decision, the ruling applies only to the judicial district, which includes Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. In September, four tribes, the state of Texas, and several parents filed petitions to ask the Supreme Court to review that decision. The Supreme Court has consolidated all of those petitions, but not yet set a date to hear them. For National Native News, I'm Trip J. Krause. The U.S. Department of the Interior announced last week it will use $1.7 billion from a recent infrastructure bill to fund outstanding water settlements with tribes. Aaron Bolton reports one tribe in northwest Montana says that funding will launch some irrigation projects this summer. The Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Chairman Tom McDonald says the announcement from the Interior Department will go a long way toward implementing projects to improve the reservation's irrigation system. Congress passed the $1.9 billion CSKT Water Compact in 2020. They have projects that will be lining canals in the Jocko area. The Blackfeet and Crow Nations will also receive funds for their water compacts. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. The Oyate Health Center's goal is to become more self-sustaining after the Rapid City, South Dakota Center assumed control from the Indian Health Service. Richard Tubles reports. The Susan Hospital in Rapid City primarily serves members of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe, Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, and the Rosewood Sioux Tribe. In 2019, the Ogallala Sioux Tribe and the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe contracted with the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board. The board manages the Oyate Health Center on the hospital campus on behalf of the two tribes. Federal Indian Health Services has been providing health care services on the campus to members of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. But recently, the tribe contracted with the health board, paving the way for the Oyate Health Center to provide services on behalf of all three tribes. 
utilizing funding from the IHS. Brandon Ekafee is the health board spokesperson. The ultimate goal is for this facility to be self-sustaining. You know, you know, we don't have to refer, you know, our relatives out to Monument or to Avera, but to be able to build that in-house capacity, which you know also builds, builds community capacity and, and generates economic development within the community, and you know leads to an overall better healthcare experience for for tribal members. Over 60% of Indian Health Services funding is administered by tribes. This gives tribes the control to identify and meet the specific needs of their members. In Rapid City, I'm Richard Tubles, and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Today marks the 150th anniversary of President Ulysses Grant signing into law the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act in 1872. Yellowstone National Park is the first national park in the country that currently draws around 4 million visitors each year. And no wonder, the 2 million acre park is home to a huge concentration of wildlife, hundreds of archaeological sites, 500 active geysers, nearly 300 waterfalls, and about 1,000 miles of hiking trails. Yellowstone is a significant part of American landscape, and it's a significant part of historical, tribal, culture, and origins. More than two dozen tribes have connections to Yellowstone going back thousands of years. Some, like the sheep eaters, lived in the area before it was even designated a park. Tribal groups were pushed out of the newly established park after 1872, and the U.S. Army was even brought in to keep tribes away. The National Park Service has a number of educational events planned, many of which include Native history and recognition to commemorate 150 years of Yellowstone. So in this hour, we're getting the Native perspective of Yellowstone National Park. You can join us too. What does Yellowstone National Park mean to you and your Native community? What is the legacy of public land designation in your Native homelands? Give us a call at one 800 996 2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And joining us from Bozeman, Montana is Dr. Shane Doyle. He's an educational and cultural consultant, and he's Absoloke. Welcome to Native America Calling Chain. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be on. 
All right. Thanks for joining us. So um, let's get started by talking about uh, history. Long, long time ago, before Yellowstone was a park, before any kind of historical record, what is the, the history of indigenous people in this area? Yeah, it's a pretty significant and long history. It's a good question. Um, you know, the oldest Actually, the oldest uh, recorded uh, discovered burial in the Western Hemisphere is just outside the park boundary. Um, it's called the Clovis Anzic site, the Anzic Clovis site, and that site is uh, 12,600 years old. And it was accidentally disturbed uh, back in 1968 by some folks who were excavating uh, some rock over there. And uh, so the materials there. Uh, while the, the, there was an uh, individual who was disturbed and discovered, and uh, he's since been reburied. Um, and I was part of that reburial process, repatriation. Um, but there was uh, a test done on uh, the remains and identified him as uh, a Native American, 100%. And so, you know, I think that scientific study um, was pretty significant to show that you know, Native people have been along the Yellowstone for for at least that long. And then there have been other um, archaeological sites found all throughout the park, like you mentioned um, at the start of the at this interview, that, um, you know, there are a lot of places in the park that uh, show evidence of Native habitation and um, hunting and gathering there. So, you know, going back 12,600 years, Pretty much ever since then, there's been a constant presence, I think. All right. And can you tell me about uh, some of these groups of uh, tribes? Um, I mentioned that there are more than two dozen, but uh, could you just kind of give us a, a, maybe a quick list of some tribes that um, see that have connections to Yellowstone? Yeah, there's a lot. You know, um, the official tally is um, 29, I think. But uh, we've talked about it over the past, you know, couple months since we've been preparing for this 150th. And I think more accurate number would be like into the 50s. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, it's hard to remember all of them. There's so many. But, you know, just assume that any tribe located in Montana Wyoming, Idaho, even up into Washington have an official uh, connection to the park. And even uh, nations as far away as Oklahoma, like the Kiowa, who have origin stories uh, based in the park. And so, um, you know, there's a lot. It stretches out uh, geographically from the park. It stretches out hundreds, probably even, you know, over a and considering that a lot of the tribes, of course, were relocated uh, during the reservation era, moved them further away from the park. Um, but it's certainly a place that, um, you know, all the tribes in this area knew about and visited and was part of their homeland. All right. And tell me about your tribe uh, specifically, the Apsalaga. What is their connection? Uh, what is your connection to Yellowstone? Yeah, it's an interesting connection. You know, um, <clears throat> I think that we've been living around there for a very long time, uh, the Upsala Gap people. Uh, 
the ridge are the I guess the official treaty designation or um, correspondence to that area came in uh, 1851 uh, at Fort Laramie. And at that time, there was a gold rush to California. And so Montana was still seen as pretty wild landscape with not much value. And all of the nations who negotiated at the uh, 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty were able to get a substantial uh, base for their homelands at that time. And if you look at the map of Montana uh, and even Wyoming, um, you know, it was all pretty much all Indian country. And so all of Yellowstone Park, what is today known as the Yellowstone Park, uh, was part of the original Upsalaga uh, reservation. It included 30 million acres of land straddling the Montana-Wyoming border and including all of what we know of today as the Absaraka Beartooth Wilderness and um, all the way over to present-day Miles City. And so um, it was a really, you know, pretty big reservation at the time. Um, and then in the 1868 treaty, uh, which was uh, caused by the Red Cloud War on the Bozeman Trail, that treaty closed the Bozeman Trail and established, you know, uh, helped to really, was supposed to, I guess, um, fortify the Great Sioux Indian Reservation. But as far as all the tribes in Montana were concerned, their reservation shrank and that happened to Crow. And so it was Yellowstone Park was part of the Crow Reservation from 1851 right up to 1868, and then uh, it was no longer part of that map designation. Okay. You mentioned uh, trails. Uh, can you talk about the significance of these historic, uh, these ancient trails? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. You know, um, I think in all directions, in multiple directions, you know, um, several from the east, from the west, north and south, uh, Native people have traversed and gone through Yellowstone Park. Um, it's a nexus place. I think looking back historically, you know, uh, the resource obsidian that was really valued as a trade item and, um, you know, was just so, so good for everything, uh, hunting, gathering, um, so it was a really important place for for everyone. So they had to know how to get there. They had to um, know, you know, once they got there, how to go in any other direction. And I think we really see that um, one of the best cases, I guess, our most tragic cases in 1877 with the Nez Pierce. And, you know, they were able to um, go through the park with 1,400 horses and I can't remember how many men, women, and children, and because they knew those trails so well, you know, there was no accidents or casualties in the hot pots or, you know, they even traversed the cliff, an area there um, through this canyon that historians still can't believe that they were able to navigate through, and so they knew all of the trails in and out, the most difficult ones they made, I think, seemed to look pretty easy. <clears throat> Okay. Um, real quick, what is, uh, how did uh, tribes use obsidian? Yeah, you know, obsidian is a black glass that can be um, broken oh. and uh, formed into really sharp, extremely sharp uh, points and blades. 
So it's been used from everything for everything from, um, you know, the tips of arrows to knives to axes. Um, it's just extremely uh, useful, valuable item. It's also beautiful. Um, and there's a lot of things that can be done with it outside of, of its utilitarian purpose. And so it was traded all throughout the continent um, going back thousands of years. You know, there's been hundreds of pounds, over 300 pounds of obsidian has been found in the Hopewell Mounds all the way over in Ohio. And that obsidian came from the Yellowstone Park. So there are still, it's still a mystery as to how 300 pounds of that black glass rock made its way from high up here in the, the Rocky Mountains all the way over to Ohio. You know, everyone has, I guess, their own theory about it, but um, it's it's interesting to to think about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, trade routes a uh, long time ago went very, very far. It's um, all very interesting to learn about this history and the, um, you know, ar- archaeology connected to all of it. Finally, you know, kind of painting the story of uh, our history in the area. And we know we have our own Native histories and our own um, origin stories. And we're going to get to that right after this break here on Native America Calling, but you can join our conversation too. We are talking about the Native perspective of Yellowstone National Park. Is your tribe, do you have connections to this park? Call in and tell us about it. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. The Department of Interior has taken a major step in finding and eliminating derogatory names for federal landmarks. The agency has found more than 600 places on federal land that require renaming. We'll talk about the significance of the change and how it's giving states momentum to fix names off federal land. That's on the next Native America Calling. Oh, services. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We are focusing on the Native perspective of Yellowstone National Park today. And you're welcome to join our conversation. What is your Native connection to Yellowstone? What's your historical and cultural connection to public parks near your home? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we have Dr. Shane Doyle with us, educational and cultural consultant. Uh, Shane, I want to ask you about uh, geysers and hot pots. Um, what were the native perspectives of these and how did that change when the park was established as a park? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think um, from my tribe's perspective, we saw those things as, uh, you know, spiritual forces, uh, medicinal uh, in use um, that should be, you know, 
left to, to their own devices um, and respected. And I think that that's part of the reason why, you know, uh, over thousands of years, Native people did really learn how to interact with those um, natural features because they respected them and they didn't want to mess with them. And they understood that uh, there was a lot of spiritual healing that could occur um, when you prayed around those places um, and you fasted. There's lots of places, lots of uh, hot pot areas around the park. Well, several that are known to have been have ceremonial history there where medicine men would go and fast uh, and get a lot of good things from those places. And so I think uh, it's always been seen as uh, a sacred spot and it's still seen that way today, even though, you know, it's kind of been turned into a form of a Disneyland, I think, uh, for most of us who go there in the summer and, and see all the people, um, there's still that sacred quality to it. Mm, Disneyland. Um, all right. Well, thanks for that, uh, Shane. Well, let's go to a caller. We have Donna uh, from Wasilla, Alaska, calling in or listening on uh, KNBA. Hey, Donna. Good morning. Yes, I uh, called in. Uh, I wanted to share this. I haven't shared it for years, mm-hmm. uh, probably over uh, 40 years because uh I, when it happened, I didn't know what was going on because I wasn't raised in a traditional way, but I had a vision, and I went into a wilderness area, and uh, my ancestors told me that the reason that those lands were set aside is because they're singing over them, and then I went into an area, and they actually started singing to me, and um, I didn't tell anybody for a long time because I thought, oh, people think I'm crazy or something. Because, uh, you know, I didn't know what was happening, but uh, it's wonderful. So our ancestors are singing over our land to be preserved, and um, they're not ever going to stop. And someday, you know, when I go to the beyond, I'll join them. I'll be singing over the land to be preserved. All right. Thank you so much, Donna, for that over in uh, Wasilla, Alaska. Um, you know, I don't think uh, folks have a similar, um, you know, experience in Disneyland. I mean, it's so it's so different how the park is uh, structured today and how, you know, lands um, that mean so much to Native people uh, have a totally different look uh, and, and a totally different meaning meeting to um, visitors, um, but, you know, those Native connections are still there. Uh, Shane, can you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, some of these sites that mean um, just a whole lot more than, you know, what what Disneyland or something like that might offer to just a visitor who's, who's not even from the area? Yeah, you know, there's a great case in point there at uh, Mammoth Hot Springs. That's one of the most visited spots in the park. Um, You know, you could assume that at least 4 million people drove to the Mammoth Hot Springs last year, which is kind of like unbelievable when you think about it. But um, there at the Mammoth Hot Springs, there's a really large, like, um, calcite rock that sticks up. It's about... um, it's probably about 20 feet tall and 
It's probably about like 10 feet wide. And um, it's called, there's a, a sign in front of it. It's labeled the Liberty Cap. And then right behind the Liberty Cap are the terraces there at the Mammoth Hot Springs. And that Liberty Cap, um, historically, a lot of Native people knew that as uh, Red Woman's digging stick. And that story about Red Woman uh, is a star story that connects us to uh, what I guess white people call the Orion constellation, but the Crow people and Blackfeet and uh, several other tribes know that as the hand constellation, and that's Red Woman's hand. And um, when she, when her hand was uh, went up into the sky, she dropped everything that she was holding and one of the things was that digging stick and so <clears throat> that feature there connects all of the nations i think of the area uh to the sky and to their history and to their connection to one another and ironically now it's been kind of dubbed the liberty cap even though it's really not i i don't think a very good symbol of liberty it's kind of a symbol of white erasure of native culture mm. all right we'll get um we'll get into erasure of native people in the park in just a bit but i wanted to bring in another guest we have with us today from fort washakie wyoming is robin Rufkar. she's the uh, administrative assistant for the eastern shoshone cultural center she's enrolled eastern shoshone and a descendant of the confederated salish and kootenai welcome to native america calling robin Hello, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks. So uh, you're you're listening to the conversation so far. You're listening to stories that uh, Shane is telling. Uh, share your perspective. Share your story. What does Yellowstone National Park mean to you and Eastern Shoshone? Yeah, it's very interesting all what Shane had to say. And um, I guess I was very fortunate. Um, so my grandfather being from the the Flathead Reservation, which is right between this reservation and uh, so Yellowstone is right between there. And so we have old pictures of my mother when she was young. You know, they went on a car trip and went through Yellowstone and had pictures there. And so my parents always uh, had taken me to Yellowstone, too. So I just love Yellowstone. I've taken my kids there. We try to go there every year. But unfortunately, um, a lot of people from the reservation here have not even gone to Yellowstone, and it's it's really sad. Um, you know, I think uh, there's not really like a welcome mat out for natives, and it's like yeah, that's land they they took from us, and and are not you know now with the 150th anniversary coming up, they're reaching out, but we haven't seen a lot of that. Um, it was probably about 10 or, let's see, maybe 20 years ago when we heard, oh, you can get into Yellowstone by just showing your tribal ID. And so we started doing that, but we got questioned. Sometimes we'd get frustrated and say, oh, we're just going to pay anyway. And so that was kind of a, a barrier, too. And I think that's gotten better in the past 10 years. If you flash your tribal ID, they won't even say anything. They'll ask you if you want the maps and pamphlets they have and just uh usher you on by but mm -hmm. um yeah it's uh 
pretty sad that, you know, um, Indians were forced out when it was started as a park. There were still sheep eater Indians or the Mountain Shoshone living there. Um, when it started as a park, they were, like, strongly encouraged to move out. Um, a lot of them went to the reservations in uh, in uh, Fort Hall and here at Fort Washakie. And even as late as 1879, there were still a couple of sheep eater families living there, and they were forced out. Mm-hmm. After being there, you know, for thousands of years, they they found with all these ex, uh, archaeological excavations that the sheep eater Indians were some that actually lived in the park year round. Um, there's one site right out of just a couple miles out of the park towards Cody, Wyoming, called Mummy Cave, and uh, it's been excavated and going back to 9,200 years ago, and a lot of the the finds that they've uh, uncovered are definitely Shoshone. There's, um, you know, they can tell by the shape of the arrowheads, um, some other things that Shoshone people made that, you know, well documented from even the, the Western Shoshone out into the Great Basin that, yeah, Shoshones were here. They were in the park. Yeah. They, yeah, harvested the, the obsidian, which they traded, um, they're even finding now that uh, the trading, like the mountain man for rendezvous that are very famous, you know, in southwestern Wyoming and around, they were just, they just piggybacked on the trading uh, rendezvous that the Shoshones already had. And there's, you know, several other ones around the region. Different tribes had their trading spots mm-hmm. and their trading routes. Yeah, and, um, you know, Shane mentioned uh, erasure of Native people, and, you know, I I could definitely see that. When I traveled through Yellowstone a couple of years ago, I didn't see any representation of Native people. I felt like um, I was the only Native person in the park at the time because there were so many other um, folks from, you know, outside um, and, and from other countries, too, just, you know, walking around in the these different crowds you could hear all kinds of different languages around you and um yeah so you know even even you know those couple of years ago there wasn't very much mention of native people um robin when did this start and and uh, what kind of maybe misconceptions of native people were kind of spread by uh folks who were in charge of the park yeah it's unfortunate that some of the first park rangers started this horrible rumor that Native people were scared of the geysers. They were scared of these hot springs and smoking waters. And it was just, I think, a a way of kind of justifying maybe, you know, that, oh, yeah, they weren't, Indians weren't here, so we're here to now save this this land and and protect it. But... um, Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, if you travel around, um, the first thing I remember seeing is uh, way off in the middle of nowhere on the western edge of the park, there's uh, a little roadside pull-off, and there's some displays there that talk about uh, the Nez Perce, yeah, when they uh, were running from the army and trying to get away and and how they came through the park. Um, on the east side, there's a, a mention of the... Um, 
Kiowa's creation story at this uh, feature called the Dragon's Mouth. And uh, so that, you know, talks a little bit, you know, out of the hundreds and probably thousands of signs and things you can read about Yellowstone Park, those are, are you know, just, there's less than a handful because the third one, you know, there's a, a cliff called Sheep Eater Cliff right above Obsidian Cliff. And it's not on our usual route that we take you through Yellowstone, but I said, we got to go there. We got to find out what the sheep eaters did here at this point. Mm-hmm. So we went there and it was just, this is, oh, this is a interesting looking basalt cliff. And it's named after the sheep eater Indians who used to live in, in Yellowstone Park, but the area is run down, potholes. You pull into the parking lot, all you see is a whole bunch of trash cans and recycling bins, and I was very disappointed. So this is one project I'm hoping to work with on the park with the, with our tribe, too, and say, oh, there's so much more you could talk about with sort of the sheep eaters. You know, they carved um, deotite pots that were, you know, up to several quarts large, and they cooked with those, and that they got those in Yellowstone, um, not to mention the obsidian. They found these big camas ovens, so the camas roots were inedible until they got roasted for three days. So they found these big earth ovens where, where um, they roasted these roots. And, you know, and there's so much more that they could have um, gathered in the area, too. So mm-hmm. they Yellowstone could be talking a lot about the the prehistory of the area and we're hoping now that they're reaching out to tribes for this 150th anniversary that uh, they can include more of that. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to, um, you know, now uh, and, and tribal relationships with the park in just a bit, but I wanted to uh, take this caller here. We have Phil in Rosebud, South Dakota, listening to K-O-Y-A. Hey, Phil, go ahead. Oh, in, in English, that means that I am first to run towards the sun. My uncle Bill Little Thunder gave me that Indian spiritual name. My English name is Philip Little Thunder Sr. from uh, Rosebud, South Dakota. I have a job on the Rosebud Sioux Tribe as a tribal historic preservation officer, a field worker. But I'm calling on behalf of my my grandfather and my grandmother, the Buffalo Nation, that reside over there in West Yellowstone. And I have a first cousin that did a 1,000-mile walk to help the Buffalo survive over there because cattle ranchers were trying to uh, eliminate the Buffalo Nation because of some brucellosis or whatever, you know. But this call is mainly about coexisting because I realize I have family that are cattle ranchers too. And I have uh, relatives that live there year-round to monitor the buffalo and help them and keep count of how many are there. The program is called Buffalo Field Campaign. Uh, last I knew was the uh, director was Mike M. But... I, every year we go out there and we do a memorial walk for my cousin, Rosalie Little Thunder. Mm-hmm. She walked from Rosebud 
did a 1,000-mile walk to West Yellowstone to bring awareness to the buffalo, our relatives that helped us survive these many millions of years. So what I'm asking the cattle ranchers over there is to coexist and not eliminate our brothers and our sisters, our grandmas and grandpas, the Buffalo Nation. Um, Every year I go out there and we do a memorial walk. And I think that's coming up in June, too. So mm-hmm. I want to thank you and uh, give me this time to express my my uh, my heartfelt uh, uh, thoughts about the Buffalo Nation over there. All right. All right, Phil, thank you so much for that. And, um, yep, Yellowstone is home to uh, some very important buffalo herds. So we'll be back after this break. We're talking about the native perspective of Yellowstone National Park. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Today we're talking about Yellowstone National Park. We're also talking about how Native connections to this significant area changed after it was deemed a national park 150 years ago. There's still time to join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And I want to bring back our guest, uh, Dr. Shane Doyle, Educational and Cultural consultant. Um, Shane, I wanted to uh, go back to 150 years. What was going on between tribes and the government at that time? Yeah, well, that's a tough question. Um, mm. I mean, it was a hard time right then, uh, back when the park was getting designated, because um, by then, every tribe here was getting devastated by smallpox and um you know, resource scarcity, uh, scarcity, bison were disappearing and elk and deer and other tribes were getting pushed, you know, from from the east over towards the west. You know, we think about um, what happened in Minnesota with the uprising and how so many Dakota and Lakota were kind of um, pushed out of that region. And uh, so many uh, nations were coming here to Montana because... Um, here in Montana, uh, we have there was a lot of bison still, and also um, we have a lot of lodgepole pines and uh, rivers, fresh water, and um, you know there's it's just a good place around here, uh, around the Three Forks of the Missouri and to the east of this spot. And so, I think um, when the park was designated. It had already been after the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, and that treaty was what closed the Bozeman Trail, the Red Cloud War. And so the Lakota uh, won a great victory and had a uh, good treaty settlement in 1868. But for the other tribes in Montana, uh, they all lost land. Uh, Their reservation all shrank. And so I think... um, it was kind of a desperate time. And then, you know, to really 
um, tie uh, Yellowstone Park to a tragic event. You know, um, in January of 1870, the same people who explored the park um, went up to uh, Blackfeet country and attacked an innocent camp up there, and it's known as the Marias Massacre. And that massacre happened just about three or four months before the first official visit to Yellowstone Park. And one of the um, guys who led that uh, expedition, his name was uh, Gustav Doan, and um, there was a mountain named after him in the park, but they're going to change the name of that mountain uh, this summer, finally, after all these years. But, you know, a lot of Americans don't know that 150 years ago, a lot of Blackfeet, innocent Blackfeet blood was spilled for the Yellowstone Park to open up. And, um, you know, there's a direct connection there. And uh, it's pretty sad, sad story. Mm-hmm. All right, and um, I'd like to go to a caller right now. We have Melvin in CNT, Nebraska, listening on KZYK. Hey, Melvin, go ahead. Yeah, this is really a nice show to talk about because Yellowstone, you know, not only is it a spiritual place, but, you know, we have all these different animals that are there and uh, minerals also... I know stories where uh, tribal members would travel all that way, take months, and soak in those warm springs that they have there. Not the boiling ones, but the nice warm springs and uh, get re-energized, you know, with minerals and vitamins from that area. That area is a very powerful and historical place, you know, not only because of the uh, geographical layout in having uh, those geysers and all the waterfalls. There's so much there. We're just starting to understand Yellowstone. Got it. All right. Thank you, Melvin, for listening in and um, joining our conversation today. Um, You can join our conversation uh, right now if you call 1-800-996-2848 or you can comment on social media. Uh, What are what what is the significance of Yellowstone National Park to your native community? What are some of the native names of these uh, significant areas for different geysers or different mountains within the park or around the park? Um, call us uh, at 1-800-996-2848 or uh, join us on social media. Um, at this time, I'd like to bring in one more guest. We have uh, Lynette St. Clair joining us from Fort Washakie, Wyoming. She's an Indian education coordinator for the Fort Washakie School, and she is Eastern Shoshone. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Lynette. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. So um, we were talking about, you know, 150 years ago, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of um, uh, of the government forcing Native people and, and different tribes and groups out of different areas and, you know, rounding people up into reservations. Um, and you know, that that was happening while the park was created. Um, how, how has the relationship after that, how has the relationship between Native people and the park and these lands changed over time? Well, I think, you know, uh, historically, you know, as uh, Shane has mentioned, a lot of blood was spilled, you know, to make way for a, a national park. And um, so recognizing, you know, the past history of the park is really important. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, not only for um, historical context, but also for educational purposes. You know, um, when I was growing up in, in school, we never really read about the national park being our homeland. Um, or even, you know, belonging to any other tribes around the region. The only thing we read about was that it was a national park, you know, declared over 150 years ago. And uh, people like to visit there and, you know, see all the natural wonders that the park had to offer. But educationally, we didn't really um, learn about, you know, the people who lived there and continue to live there and, and occupy those spaces. Okay. And so now, how do you introduce Yellowstone National Park to your students? Well, you know, um, about 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to take a group of students from Fort Washke School to a camp there in Yellowstone, and it was reconnecting with our ancestral homeland. And um, it, was, it was one of the, I think, really um, moving events, I think, in, in my career because the students that we took had no idea that our people occupied those lands. And so um, introducing them to, you know, the areas that our ancestors walked and continue to walk in um, was really significant. A lot of our students gained a lot of knowledge about that, and um, even some have gone on to do internships in the park. And I think, you know, by uh, introducing not only our students but our community to, the, to those lands that um, our ancestors used to occupy and still do to this day, I think it's, um, it's critical and it's, uh, it's, you know, part of our history and we need to continue on with um, teaching and educating not only our students, but, you know, students and educators throughout the state of Wyoming and, and in these areas. Right. And, uh, you know, we were hearing about erasure of Native people uh, within the park. You know, there's so many different signs and stops all over the park that uh, teach visitors about the significance of, um, you know, everything <laughs> within the park. Um, and, and there's little about Native people. Um, do you see that? Uh, do you see that changing in the future? And um, what do you want to see from uh, um, you know, park officials uh, when it comes to educating visitors about Native people in the park? Well, you know, I think um, just in my past experience, and I think the last maybe 15, 20 years, that has started to improve mm. um, simply because our, our, our people are becoming more educated and they're, they're actually um, acquiring 
uh, places at the table when it comes to, um, you know, relationships between the park and the tribes that, you know, were in this area. Um, so I think that's a really important step. Another thing is that I would like to see is, you know, the original names of these spaces. You know, for example, um, the original name for um, Yellowstone, our, you know, we, our tribal word for it is Bondoiking, which means where the water comes out. You know, we also have like the Obsidian Peaks that we call a Dupont, you know, the Black Rock Standing. So I would like to see all of our original um, names of these places um, reintroduced. And that not only um, lends to the history or the historical place of our people there, but also I think is, um, you know, educates the people going forward that, you know, these lands had names before Western civilization. You know, we have indigenous names for those. The, the Crows have indigenous names for those, the Blackfeet, the Shoban, the Shoshone. You know, we all have names for these, and I think it's really important to educate the people about those names because, you know, Indians didn't just happen to be in the park after it was declared a, a national park. I mean, we've always been there. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, Lynette, uh, what um, what uh, do you want future visitors of the parks to understand about Native people today? I know there's a ton of history um, to be learned from visiting the park right now, and we were talking so much today about history, but uh, what would you like uh, future visitors to know about Native people today? Um, well... Like I said, you know, we've had a constant presence there, um, indigenous people for over 10,000 years. And, you know, today we as educators, we got to do a better job educating not only our students, but just the general public, you know, about indigenous people. Um, we're not relics of the past. We are still here. We exist in these spaces. And I think that um, visitors to the park need to recognize that. And they need to also be respectful of those spaces because those are some very spiritual spaces in the, in the area. You know, all across our mountains, we have that connection. And so um, they need to be respectful of that and, and respectful of all the indigenous people that occupy the areas around the park. Okay. Um, and Lynette, do you go to the park? Um, these days, and, and what is the process like for you to visit the park? Um, I've been to the park. You know, we go through there constantly um, because we're back and forth to Idaho to visit our relatives on the other side of the mountain. Um, but, yeah, you know, um, going into the park, of course, you can present your ID at the, at the gate and get in. And, um, I, you know, one of the things that I, I try and be – um, cognizant of is just um, staying on the on the trails and not, you know, messing up any of the natural beauty of it. But also, you know, um, there are certain protocols that we follow when we're there, and um, some of those protocols are not for, you know, public consumption. Those are just things that you grow up knowing within your own families, and so, um, you know, those are things that we honor and we recognize and we carry forward with us. Mm -hmm. Are you going to be Are you going to be bringing students back to the park? Um, I hope to. Uh, 
there's you know there's a, a lot of opportunities, and that's one of the one of my highlights of being the Indian Education Coordinator at Fawashki School is um, bringing new opportunities for our students to um, you know to introduce them to not only their ancestral homelands but also to the history of our of our people, our um, Shoshone people. So um, yeah, hopefully I, I, I'll be able to do that again in, in the new, near future. Okay. All right. I'm going to go back to Robin for um, uh, this last bit of the show here. Uh, Robin Ruffkar is the administrative assistant for the Eastern Shoshone Cultural Center. Um, Robin, I bet there's a lot of information to learn about Eastern Shoshone over at the Cultural Center. Um, where can we get uh, more information and, and more Native perspectives about Yellowstone? Um, yeah, our uh, culture center is located in the Fort Washington School. Uh, visitors are always welcome. Um, and there's a lot of happenings now this year. You know, today is the official date of the um, the signing of the park into to law. Um, in June, there's going to be a gathering here on the Wind River Reservation to commemorate the, the park's 150th anniversary. Um, in May, I think in Cody, Wyoming, there's going, uh, the University of Wyoming is hosting a uh, symposium on Yellowstone. And uh, we're hoping that, well, they've invited a lot of different natives, and we're hoping that, yeah, the park is going to finally start recognizing the native voice and, and incorporating that into their you know, everything they have there in Yellowstone from, yeah, the signs, place names, the history. Um, so it's, it's a good step in the right direction. Right. Yeah, well, hopefully, um, listeners out there, if you're going to be visiting Yellowstone National Park, you hear this episode first and you have an opportunity to learn about the native history and connection to Yellowstone National Park. It looks like there's a whole year's, well, a whole year's worth of um, commemoration events and educational events going on uh, that the National Park Service is uh, putting on. So. Um, I want to say thank you so much to our guests. This is the end of the hour. Uh, we had on Dr. Shane Doyle, Robin Rafkar, and uh, Lynette St. Clair. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about changing offensive place names on federal lands. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Andy Murphy. <laughs> Looking to get your high school diploma? Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute offers Native Americans ages 18 or older training and preparation courses for the high school equivalency diplomas, in person and online beginning May 4th. All attendance and testing fees for this program are waived, and resources will be available to help with supplies and living expenses. Space is limited. Application deadline is April 8th. More by calling 505-382-4287 or at sipi.edu who support this show. Program support from AmeriCorps. 
AmeriCorps members who serve in VISTA make a difference in the fight against poverty while earning money for college and gaining valuable skills. Rewarding service opportunities are available across America, focusing on economic opportunity, healthy futures, education, and more. It will change your life and the lives of others. Information at A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.